Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepherd, and with me as usual is my co-host, John Tidy. Uh, John, how's tricks? <laughs> uh, it's going well. Did not expect that one. <laughs> <laughs> I changed it for the first time in 15 episodes. So John uh, runs reaperblog.net. You should definitely check that site out. And I have a site called Production Advice, uh, where I'm aiming to help you get better results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And of course, I'm a mastering engineer. So we've done a show on fear of bass. We did a show on how bright is too bright. And so I figured we should do a show about the mid-range. And that's what this is. So I I thought it'd be interesting to start off with a quote from George Marino, uh, which I've heard a few times, he said that the music is in the mid-range. So, John, have you come across that expression? I think I've heard that one or something very similar to that. Um, I don't really know what it means. I think it's almost the opposite of a Bootsy Collins quote about the bass. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's all about that bass. That wasn't Bootsy Collins. No. (laughs) Um, Oh, no, well, it's, the reason I mention it is exactly that. I'm not sure that I know what it means either. And I think some people think it means something different than it does. I think a lot of people hear that the music is in the mid-range and kind of assume that basically the idea is if you get the mid-range right, then everything else is going to be good. Sure. Or or a lot of the main instruments, like the melodies in the mid-range, the vocals in the mid-range. Um, if the mid-range is right, it will sound good on... on Big speakers or small speakers, I suppose. Well, I think particularly small speakers. I think that that's definitely another thing that you could take from it, and I think that is probably true. It's no good having a huge bass sound and this beautiful, sweet, silky high end if you're listening to it on, you know, a, a smartphone speaker or a pair of cheap earbuds or whatever. Um, and especially back in the day when I think that expression was coined and people were listening to AM radios, uh, transistor radios, you know, with with even by modern standards, really crappy speakers in them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was that would make sense then, right? You, if you get the mid-range right, it doesn't really matter what the bass and the treble are doing. Um, and I think, I mean, yeah, the other, I think the way that it's meant is is literally in the sense that, so I mean, I don't know, for, for me, bass probably kind of starts to transition into low mid somewhere around 300 hertz, and the mid-range starts kind of turning into high frequencies somewhere about four or five kilohertz, if you just put really harsh filters in on a signal, cutting out everything below 300 and everything above 4K, say, and you listen to it, it would still sound like music, right? We could still hum the tune. It would still be fine. Whereas if you flip that the other way and you put in filters where you chopped out everything between 300 and 5 kilohertz, nobody's going to want to listen to that Yeah, because um, it would just be boom and sizzle. Um, so I think there there is a sense in which it just literally means that's where the music is. That you like, you say. That's where the the vocal instruments, the guitars, pretty much everything that you can kind of hum and has rhythm and all the rest of it is. The one meaning that I think might be confusing is if people think it means you get the mid range right and everything else is fine, because that to me that that's where I disagree. Um, it's. I mean, there's this interesting thing where I forget exactly where which harmonics it is, but there's a our brains are incredibly clever at kind of decoding sound. So if you, I think it's the fourth, fifth, and sixth harmonics in a note, if it's not a real note and you just play tones, test sine waves that correspond to the fourth, fifth, and sixth harmonics of a note, our ears can figure out what the fundamental would have been for that note if it had been there, if that makes sense. Or if you filtered out all of the low end and just left those high harmonics, and that's what's going on when you listen to a really small speaker, there's no genuine bass there, but our ear kind of fills that in for us. So in that sense, it's it's true that, you know, really you only need the mid-range. But if you have way too much bass or treble, it's it's never going to sound right. And mastering, one of the, the main things we do is get the overall tonal balance of the music right, dealing with the, the balance between the lows, the mids, and the highs. So, yeah, I just, it's an interesting quote, and I think it was kind of, fun to think about the different meanings of it, mm-hmm. but it shouldn't be taken too literally. Yeah. Um, Something along with, with that, where the ear kind of fills in our ears are, or our, our brains can kind of get used to a sound that doesn't have a lot of bass and we sort of get, we get used to it and, and we don't really notice after a little while. 
that there's not enough bass, especially if there's, you know, if we can still hear a bit of the bass guitar or something like that, we might still have a, a powerful uh, reaction to the music, even though there's you know, nothing below 500 hertz after, you know, after a time of getting used to it. Yeah, I think that's true. And if you go back and listen to kind of some of the classic, really old record, I mean, you know, way back when there wasn't any genuine bass or treble on uh, recordings, you can still listen to those classic recordings of those artists from that era and uh, th they can still sound great. And, and lots of people like that. It just always makes me smile when people talk about the, the kind of the warm sound of old recordings because lots of people say warm and quite often I just think they mean dull. <laughs> um, you know, it's like the more high frequency there is in there, the more risk that it's going to sound harsh or tinny. Um, and if if all of that high end was kind of rolled off quite nice and smoothly, um, it can sound quite natural to us. Um, and a lot of those, you know, the kind of the early mics, especially kind of ribbon mics and stuff, don't have the high frequency response that we expect these days, um, but still sound amazing on a ton of different instruments. So so there I'm kind of contradicting what I just said, which is in that sense, maybe the bass and the, the treble isn't as important. And I mean, the other thing is that if you just listen to the everything that's out there, there are a ton of classic albums that have what we would consider these days to be way too much treble or way too much bass or not enough bass or whatever. And they sound great and people love them. Um, one that springs to mind was, uh, I re recently heard More Than a Feeling by Boston. And I was astonished at how bright that recording was. I mean, I remember hearing that when I was, I don't know, in my teens, maybe. I quite liked it. I have to be honest. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was young. What am I going to do? Um, but I had no idea that, yeah, I, I thought it was a great sounding recording. Um, and they were kind of quite proud of the sound of their records. I remember them boasting about the fact that they were they were kind of like Queen. There were no synths. They, they created like thunder effects by thumping on guitar reverb pedals and stuff. But yeah, I just listened to it and thought, wow, I had no idea that record was so bright. Um, and another favourite one of mine as an example of this kind of thing is Ray of Light by Madonna. If you listen to that album, it's really bass heavy and really not very bright in comparison, well, even to plenty of her other albums. But I don't think anybody ever really listened to those and kind of felt there was a problem. The, the Strokes' first album is kind of almost pure mid-range. Um, there's hardly any bass and, and treble on that record. And I don't know whether that was deliberate or whether it was a mistake or, but it sounds great. It gives it its own flavor and its own feeling. I used that as a, as a mix reference a little while back. And I thought, wow, this sounded better in my head than when I actually <laughs> referenced it. <laughs> yeah. Well, th that could be the, the whole mastering monitoring effect as well. Uh, you know, where you, I mean, that's happened to me a ton of times where there are recordings that I, I think I know and love, and then I, I put them on the mastering rig and think, whoa, I had no idea it sounded like that. Um, but yeah, that's that's a fairly extreme example, that record. But so, okay, mid-range is really, really important. And I mean, probably everybody listening, well, it's interesting because I was thinking about this episode and kind of figuring out what we were going to talk about. Um, and to begin with, I was thinking, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's there are some really common problems with the bass that keep coming up that we talked about in that episode. And, you know, there are really common problems in the high frequency. And I was thinking maybe, I don't know whether there you get those same problems with the mids. Maybe it's just a case that you, you have to balance them. And then I started thinking about it and I came up with a ton. Um, so, I mean, for example, you know, if everything can sound harsh um, where, you know, somebody has heard, Oh, you can get, sound X to cut through by boosting at two kilohertz. So they boost two kilohertz on everything and it just, it's painful to listen to. Or maybe everything is really close mic'd um, so that you're just picking up way more of the high frequencies and the, the, the mid range than is natural sounding. Um, or you could get, you know, kind of weird boxiness effect The you know, where people put their hand, cup the mic um, and it, all the sound kind of reflects back in and you get comb filtering or, or where they're off axis um, from the mic and, uh, you know, so the, the frequency sounds really coloured and weird. Or, well, so one that I had a while back was this guy who I had this uh, project to work on and just the vocal sounded really odd. It was kind of, uh, there were these kind of 
frequencies kind of really ringing out and sounding unnatural in the mid-range. So I went in and tried to correct them with uh, parametric EQ and it wasn't quite working. And in the end, I did figure out a solution and I'm going to come back to this and uh, explain what that solution was a bit later on when we're talking about tactics for dealing with the mid-range. But I emailed him and I don't think I quite had the the gumption, <laughs> there's a good English word, to to ask him whether he was whether his room was cube shaped, but I definitely asked him what the room dimensions were. And sure enough, I think it was like two meters by two meters by two meters. Um, and he had the mic right in the middle of the room. So basically he had all of these reflections bouncing off the walls and all of these um boosts and cuts in the the frequency response as a result. Um and it was a nightmare to fix. So yeah, problems just with mic placement and the acoustics that people are recording in. Uh, something we talked about in the, the bass episode where people have too much low-cut filtering. If they put a low-cut on every channel, you end up with no genuine bass, except maybe on the bass and the kick drum, and everything else just sounds kind of hard and middly as a result. Um, you can get weird hollow sounds in the mid-range where, like if you've got cancellation from different mics or the polarity has been inverted by mistake on one channel, or there's reflections in the space where it was recorded. Um, somebody's added too much reverb, too much chorus. You know, there's a ton of things that can go wrong in the mid-range. The thing that hit me was that, I don't know about you, I find them much harder to fix than problems in the bass or the treble. And I was kind of wondering to myself why that was. And what I hit on was that I think it's to do it's to do with the spacing of the notes in terms of frequencies. Um, it's like once you get above, I don't know, four or five k, there isn't really much note information involved in the sound. There are some exceptions to that, but it's almost all timbre. It's almost all you know, kind of string noise or uh, sizzle or air or uh, distortion or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Down in the bass end, there's plenty of space, right? We can the 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 notes are kind of spaced out evenly enough across the frequency range that you can almost literally EQ out a single note in a bass line if you needed to. Um, so we have quite a lot of control there. So like in the high end, it's like you might as well go in with fairly broad boosts because it's it's all kind of more of a, just a, a, a wash, if you like, of, of different frequency components. Yeah. And in the bass end, we can get really surgical if we need to. But in the mid-range, I think the the notes are kind of, you know, you, you, you'll be in a different note by moving just a few hertz in a particular direction. So I find that when there's a problem, you probably need to go in with a much narrower EQ than you might in the bass or the treble. And that can very quickly sound unnatural. Have you come across that? Absolutely. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. There's there's so much of, of um, the musical content in this range from like 300 hertz up to 5k that's a really big range compared to a 20 to 300 right that's Mm. a a good portion of our eqs are centered around that area or we have a lot of resolution in that area but probably not as much as we should have i think you need to be a little more exact with it and any sort of significant boost there just sounds bad it's really easy to make things sound bad in that area either boosting or cutting yeah i agree and i i think another thing i mean just as you were talking that occurred to me is obviously you know it kind of goes without saying when you're when you're mastering we're dealing with a stereo mix down and that means that i mean you probably can get away with quite narrow cue cuts and boosts in a mix on a single channel if you're just dealing with one instrument if you uh, say had a you know, particularly honky sounding guitar cab or whatever it might be, you could probably deal with that. But the chances of that uh, that kind of problem being the same across all of the instruments, I think get less in the mid-range. You could get really lucky and actually have something like a feedback tone notched out um, in a live performance. But But if it's, you know, if it's like a certain note on the vocal, like wrong vocal mic um notching that out across everything in stereo is not really going to work well it's almost certainly going to mess up the the guitar sound or you know do something weird to the to the synth pad or whatever it is um i guess the exception to that is 
if there is a problem with the monitoring or if there's a, a feature, if you like, of the monitoring. And so perhaps we should pause now and just, it kind of goes without saying, we've mentioned it in the base and the trouble episodes as well. So we won't go into huge detail here, but monitoring is critical to getting this stuff right. You know, if you have a pair of uh, monitors where say maybe the crossover is not quite right and there's a little bit of a dip or a, a boost in the frequency response, uh, then, I mean, if that's happening when you're mixing, then it's going to influence the decisions that you make and therefore the sound that you get. And if if it's a problem in the mastering situation, then it's really going to mess things up because you're going to be correcting for something that's not really a problem with the recording. And I think the one thing that is worth saying about the monitoring, having said we're not going to go on about it too much, is in the low mids, right? Because the biggest problems most people have with monitoring tend to be in the low end um, because you know, it's the hardest to deal with in terms of uh, acoustic treatment. Uh, it's where most buildups in kind of small to medium-sized rooms that lots of us are working in these days happen, um, and it's where most monitors are deficient. Um, but there's this kind of transition, you know, I mean, and once you get, I guess, above 500 to 1K, something like that, those, basically, the the, the issues with the room start to get kind of so complex and so close together that they they more or less average out. So it becomes you're less much less likely to have really deep peaks or nulls in the the frequency response at the the listening position. But in the in the low mids in that transition area from the bass into I guess you know that kind of five hundred hertz area, um, there you still can have quite big problems potentially if uh, especially with the with the room if uh, the monitoring isn't ideal and especially if you don't have enough acoustic treatment um and that obviously you know then you're kind of into the mid-range and that can cause all kinds of problems in terms of the decisions that we make when we're recording and mixing it can color the sound of what actually goes into the mics if it's a problem with the room where it was recorded and it can influence the decisions that you make after recording or while you're recording if it's in the the mix room so well, if it's the same room, then those problems are kind of multiply against each other. And if it's different rooms, you can have two sets of problems. So, you know, there's definitely an issue to be dealt with there. And that's a crucial part of the frequency spectrum. Um, I mean, maybe we should talk uh, a little bit about the what can happen in the, the mid-range. I mean, for me, yet again, it's all about balance. So overall, you want consistent levels between the bass, the mids, and the highs. But even within the mid-range... Um, pretty much at every frequency, there's there's a kind of a benefit and there's potentially a problem. So like things that spring to mind for me would be 500 hertz. That kind of area is really important for the for the warmth and the the weight and the depth of the sound. You, you know you need it for muscle in guitars um, and for for tone in vocals for a piano sound. But if you have too much, you're almost guaranteed that stuff's going to sound muddy and cluttered and kind of woolly and all that kind of stuff. One kilohertz is absolutely crucial for, for vocal sounds and for gu guitar parts and uh, so many instruments. But if you have too much of it, it's going to sound honky. It's going to sound nasal and hollow. Two kilohertz is crucial for, for clarity and to, to get bite in a guitar. And it, it is a good way of getting things to cut through the mix because it's the most sensitive part of our ear. But it's so easy to overdo because it can become harsh. I mean, it applies across the entire frequency spectrum, but in the mids especially, there's this kind of Jekyll and Hyde or, you know, walking a knife edge kind of feeling of, which is why it's so crucial to get it balanced. Have you got any um, favourite or most hated frequencies in the mid-range? 4K. Just get rid of it. Don't need it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you can't. No, don't say that because people will go in with a notch and they'll cut it and then everything will sound weird. But yeah, I know. Actually, for me, it's 3K. 3K is one of my least favourite frequencies, I think. With 4K, there was kind of... A meme. There was a uh, April Fool's joke that um, the Unstoppable Recording Machine guys did at a plugin that only turned down 4K. I don't know if they actually made that as a real plugin, but ever since then, I'm, I keep thinking, like I keep, you know, mixing and and stuff, and I, when I get to the mid range, I always end up right around 4K, notching something out because it's too harsh, but. It's like a meme, but also there's a bit of truth to it. I, well, there's a bit of truth to most memes, isn't there? It's, yeah. And I mean, I, I guess kind of all of these things lead to um, 
a kind of general piece of advice, which is to... I've got in my notes that you want a smooth frequency response. You don't necessarily want a smooth frequency response because if there isn't an instrument playing at a particular frequency, then you don't want anything to be happening at that frequency. Yeah. But if you take something like, I don't know, you know, kind of widely spread chords on a piano, you don't want a big lump at some particular frequency within that sound. And the, the same thing applies to, a, to an overall mix. So, you know, in terms of starting to offer people some solutions for this kind of thing, if you want to help get the, get the mids right, one thing you can do is listen out and maybe check an analyzer and look for um, inconsistencies at different frequencies. Um, so, for example, like 2K shouldn't be higher than 1K. It should be a little bit lower generally. Like it, it's usually slightly sloping down towards the high end. Not usually going to have a, a spike at 2 and 4K higher than where your um, your 1K would be. Yeah. Does that make sense? I, I mean... It does make sense. I think you, we need to be careful because some of the... That made perfect sense back in the day when I started mastering and my analyzer had, I think, a total of eight bands. Yeah. Um, so it, like each one was kind of, you know, 100, 200, 500 hertz, whatever. Um, yeah, but th there are 999 frequencies in between those two numbers. Well, yeah, but what I was going to say is a modern analyzer, like something, you know, Isotope Insight or one of the new gen products or, you know, even the analyzer in the, like one of the FabFilter EQ uh, plugins can now show you such detail that you can actually uh, be deceived into thinking. I, th I think you have to kind of watch these displays and either like d dial in some settings to average it out a bit, to smooth it out, to slow the response down um, or kind of do that in your head. Because uh -huh. I mean, just for example, if you know, uh, you could easily have some peaks leaping out at two kilohertz in a screaming guitar solo, right? Um, because if it's a long, pure note, there's going to be a ton of harmonics. You're going to see those jump up out of the, the spectrum. That doesn't mean we have to go in and grab all of those and kind of pull them back, because that's just a thing that just happened for that one moment, for that one note. And if it sounded good, then it's fine. More, more likely volume is more of the problem than EQ in something like that. Yeah, could be. Um, exactly. So I, I, I do think looking at an analyzer can be helpful in, in training our ears, but you, you have to take it with a pinch of salt as well. Um, but one thing that can be useful, I think, is if you're, if you're looking at and kind of consistently seeing there's not a lot going on at, say, 500 hertz, I would say it's usually worth an experiment um, of just kind of trying to fill that out, you know, put in a nice broad parametric, lift it up, see how it sounds. Um, it will either start to sound weird, in which case, it was fine the way that it was, and it should have a little bit of a dip in the frequency response there, or it might actually sound better. And you might think, oh, okay, yeah, that now that does sound a bit more warm, a bit more full, and a bit more natural. In the same way, if there's a big lump at, yeah, two kilohertz, um, you know, kind of most of the time when most of the instruments are playing, then uh, it's probably worth an experiment of pulling that frequency back a little bit and seeing how it sounds. Um, and, you know, if you want to get careful about it it might be worth level matching um especially if the plugin has it built in or the processor that you're using um just to make sure you're not being fooled by anything by the loudness change that you might be hearing but that can be especially when we're learning this stuff i think that could be a useful strategy to um just help figure out because you know you can look at an analyzer or listen to a mix and it kind of go well it kind of sounds all right you know what is or isn't a problem so yeah, avoid lumps and bumps in the frequency spectrum, ones that you can hear, ones that you can see, but also I would say avoid kind of trying to correct them with aggressive EQ. I tend to use quite broad EQ corrections in mastering almost all the time, and unless there's some kind of real extreme problem. Um, but um, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Let's maybe talk about some tactics to, to help people. I mean, that's one of them, is just to experiment to listen and to look for inconsistencies in the frequency response. Well, okay, let's let's talk about the solution to... The, the problem with narrow EQ cuts is uh, they, they don't tend to happen very much in the real world. I'm trying to think of an example where they might. Okay, in the stairs in my house. <laughs> um, uh, so we have a big long staircase that kind of goes across the house up to the top floor. And so we have a deep stairwell 
with big parallel walls about whatever it is, a metre and a half apart. So you get a really pronounced flutter echo in there and everything kind of goes boing. I mean, the whole thing is kind of like a, a tuned resonator or something. If you if you hum the right note, you can just build, the, the sound goes crazy. And you haven't um, treated that yet. <laughs> do you know, my staircase isn't that much of a priority for me. <laughs> no, I almost kind of find it entertaining. It's, okay. uh, you know, I'm a bit of acoustic variety around the house. But there's nothing wrong with that, I don't think. <laughs> Anybody listening to this might be going, well, you'd have to be crazy to record vocals in a stairwell, except lots of people do. I've often seen people talking about how in an attempt to get some separation for the vocalist, you know, if, if they're recording in the studio set up in a, in a bedroom, then they will get the singer to just stand outside at the top of the stairs, at which point you're basically adding a really odd sounding early reflection plug-in to your, to your singer. Or to get a natural reverb, they might use a stairwell that's really live, but that can have lots of you know, random echoes and yeah weird it depends, depends on the stairwell it's it's yeah. like using a bathroom for for, for a reverb or, or whatever um have you seen the the thing going around facebook with paul mccartney recording a snare sound in a in a toilet somewhere no i haven't seen that one I, according to one of the recording books i was maybe it was glenn john's definitely one of the the beatles recording books was talking about they actually did that quite a lot in the early days because uh, you know, just to get different effects. Mm-hmm. Um, they would find that little weird spaces around recording studios had interesting sounds. But mm-hmm. so, yeah, if you have a fantastic sounding stairwell, by all means, record your vocals or your drum kit or whatever in there. Um, but beware that quite often they sound odd. That's one example of where you could get uh, a kind of a pretty unnatural sounding EQ effect in the real world. But there's the thing. I, I mean, that jumps out to my ears as sounding unnatural in the real world and it would in the studio as well. If I added an EQ boost with a kind of, you know, a resonant filter that created some kind of similar effect in the studio, it would need to be a creative thing. It's not likely to be something that makes something sound natural or real or uh, warm or any of those kind of things that we're talking about. So, And the same thing applies with EQ. In particular, I think it applies with normal EQ, by which I mean analog EQs or standard digital EQs with the minimum phase. Um, there's quite a lot of people talking these days online about the, the the pros and cons of phase linear and minimum phase EQs, and we've, we've talked about it before, so I won't kind of go off on a huge tangent. But going back to the example I mentioned earlier of the guy who recorded his vocals in a cubicle room, the solution in that case was to get him to send me the vocals as a stem, and I went in and literally pulled out every harmonic that was singing out um in that vocal so i had you know there was i forget what but it would for example it would have been 100 hertz 200 hertz 400 hertz 800 hertz all the harmonics um really aggressive really narrow notches the kind of thing i would not normally recommend and that just wouldn't work with a minimum phase eq in fact i i previewed it and it sounded horrible the 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 phase changes incurred by those types of eqs just sound completely unnatural and weird. When I switched the EQ over to phase linear mode, it actually worked. I mean, it still wasn't the best sounding vocal in the world, but it got rid of the really big problem that was there to begin with. And that, I think, is probably the first thing that I would suggest. If you if you have a source where you feel like, you know, there's a resonance in a particular instrument or something that you really want to deal with and it needs quite an aggressive, quite narrow cue to deal with it, um, my suggestion would be to start with uh, phase linear EQ. Now, the big problems with uh, minimum phase, normal EQ, is when you're mixing two things together. You know, if you try and use it in, in kind of a parallel way or if you've got spill between mics within a mix. Um, but personally, I also feel it's a problem if you apply it to a stereo mix. And I think maybe it's something to do with the fact that most instruments, they are, they're full of harmonics. The The, the tone is spread over a wide frequency range. Um, so even though changing the phase doesn't necessarily introduce any kind of problematic coloration to the sound, I think when notes move around through a narrow EQ, if that makes sense, if you think of a you know a chord progression or something shifting up and down with a really narrow EQ notch, I think our ears do pick out that that sounds weird and unnatural. Um, 
And sometimes phase linear EQ can be a solution to that. So, I mean, have, have you ever come across that, John, or not? I'm still not using linear phase EQs all that much. I should. I don't have a favorite linear phase EQ right now. The latency is something that has always bothered me about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to AB without hearing a, a drop often. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, it's, and uh, I certainly don't think it's kind of you have to use it all the time, but I think in, in this particular instance, and also um, there's another situation where phase linear EQ um, could be helpful. I'm going to come back to it, but it's, it's something to bear in mind. If there's some kind of EQ change you want to make that, that feels unnatural, even though it is improving the tonal balance, maybe worth switching over, especially if you have a plugin that makes that easy. You know, yeah. Fab Filter, I think the Pro-Q3, you can have different frequency bands with uh, different minimum phase or linear phase or whatever. So, it, you know, the plugins are starting to get really flexible. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, the, the kind of issues with pre-delay and stuff are probably not as audible in the mid-range um, unless you're being really aggressive. So that's worth anything. So to summarize that there, if you're using a narrow cue, boost or cut, linear phase EQ is better. Probably, yeah. For wide, minimum phase is fine. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay, so if we want to talk about another tactic, um, this is one we have definitely mentioned before, so we won't go into it in uh, huge detail, but it kind of relates back to that, you know, how should things sound? You know, you're looking at the frequency analyzer and you're seeing a bit of a dip. Is that good or is it bad? One thing you can do is experiment. The other thing you can do is compare with reference tracks. Chances are, you know, uh, if it's a great sounding recording, if you know it's a great sounding recording, it sounds fantastic to you everywhere. Then if there's something a bit quirky about your monitoring or your taste, uh, maybe, or the recording that you've been supplied with, whatever it is, comparing what you're working on with that reference track can be a great way of setting your mind at rest or, you know, kind of inspiring you. Oh, I really want it to sound like that. And maybe I can change what I'm doing to make it sound more like that by, you know, doing this or that or the other. Uh, and as always, the only kind of qualification to that is, I mean, it needs to be suitable material. You know, you don't want to use a hard rock track as a reference for a folk tune. Um, and you need to loudness match it before you make the comparison. Um, so either by ear or using a loudness meter, just turn down the mastered uh, thing that you're listening to so that it's at the mastering level that you're working at. I guess if it's a vintage tune, you might have to turn it up perhaps, but more likely than not, you're going to have to turn it down um, to avoid being fooled by the the loudness deception. The loudness deception is uh, a free band name for anyone there. I don't want to look for one. No, no, I have a copyright on that. So. Okay. Actually, I don't, but... <laughs> Um, this is not so much, well, this is a kind of, uh, a point that leads into a tactic. Um, and that is just to say that, I mean, it kind of goes without saying that dynamics are crucial. You know, they're, they're a key aspect of every part of a mix and a master. I think particularly so in the mid range, possibly because our ears are so sensitive. Um, but the example I'm particularly thinking of is if you have, um, let's say, well, maybe a, a piano sound where a particular, maybe it's not the most beautiful sounding piano in the world, uh, and a particular part of the frequency range sings out more than another, or you have a player who just has a habit of maybe, you know, heavier on the right hand than the left or whatever it might be, that can feel like a tonal imbalance if particular notes ring out more than others perhaps it can sound like an eq problem we kind of touched on this when we the example of the the harmonics in a guitar solo sticking out and you mentioned john that it could just be a level issue uh you know if a particular part of a part is jumping out more because the dynamics are inconsistent we might be tempted to reach for an eq to correct for that but then if another part of that part is not leaping out in the same way then the cut that we just did to tame that that kind of you know bit of the upper mids that was leaping out is going to take away from the clarity and the tone of the quieter sections um, or the quality, you know, the timbral quality of the the left hand in the piano part, say. So uh, that might be a situation where actually using a little bit of compression to even out those dynamics would be uh, a better solution. Now, that kind of really applies in a mix, I would say. I mean, it applies in mastering as well, but uh, the other side of this in terms of the, the how crucial dynamics are is I would be 
very careful about overdoing compression in the mid-range, um, especially when you're mastering. You know, I mean, it can be a really nice tactic with the, with the low end to to kind of put a big EQ boost in and say, uh, low down, if you're, especially if you're using a multiband uh, compressor so that you can you can kind of beef up that frequency range, but then you can control it with some compression and have some really quite aggressive compression to get kind of fullness and consistency in the low end. I would be much more cautious about that kind of strategy in the mid range. Uh, you know, it's it gets very easy to for things to sound cluttered and overly dense, especially if you have an arrangement where there's a ton of different things happening in the mid range. Compression can be just the right thing, but it, you need to approach with caution. I find multiband compression in the mid range gets really tricky. It's if you're not constantly A B comparing you're probably just making it more dull sounding um, or it's, it, it really kills like the life of it. I think the, uh, the attack and release controls are very critical here. Yeah, can be. I mean, it depends. I mean, it's interesting because one of the things I like about multiband is that sometimes it will get some gentle compression happening in the mid range and actually not touch the bass and treble so much. So you can kind of have a little bit of a glue effect whilst keeping a bit of space and clarity higher and lower, which is kind of the, the opposite of what you just said. But they're, they're both true, and it depends on the material, right? Um, you know, uh, that, that previous example I gave where you might want to heavily compress the bass, that's that's also the opposite of what I just said. So, you know, as always, it's... It depends on how you approach it, whether you, you, you like to kind of push the EQ up so that with the threshold even across all bands, it evens things out where other people are using uh, different threshold amounts for each band of the compressor and then balancing out any gain reduction with the output gain of each band, right? Yeah, it does. And 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 it depends on the material. It depends on what the mix needs, you know. But I think the the, the focus of all of these episodes where we've talked about kind of, you know, bass, mids, and, and, and treble has been on problems. And I think probably the biggest problem I hear in the mid-range is that everything's already too dense, too cluttered. You know, to, things are getting muddled, things are fighting with each other. Um, so you want to kind of open things out and get more clarity. If you have a mix where there's a ton of space in the mid-range, that's not really a problem, right? That's just, that we can deal with that because you can use some gentle EQ to fill in any gaps and then some gentle compression to, to kind of glue it if necessary and, and pull things together. That's just standard practice. Whereas, yeah, if you have... A, if you've got, a, especially if you've got a cluttered mid-range, or you know the the mix feels muddy and and kind of too too dense, then compression in the mids is almost certainly not the way to go. This range is also where if there's a lot of heavy compression happening, it can sound really fatiguing and all those kind of negative loudness worth sorts of things. Um, if we're completely killing the transient on every drum hit, things like that. One of the reasons why the attack and release on a multiband compressor is so critical here but just as you said often our mixes are already very dense in this area it's not something that we can do a lot with as far as dynamics i think no i agree i think but there are some other things that we can do and that leads nicely into the next tactic i was going to talk about um which is to to think about the stereo image um and the panning in the mids now that's something it's hard to have real control over in mastering, uh, obviously, because if somebody's panned everything to the middle, well, what are we going to do? But something that's much more common is where I just feel things are either too wide or more commonly a bit clustered in the center, in the mid-range. I mean, you know, in the bass, it's kind of natural that probably things are more or less central. And in the high frequencies, things tend to spread out because you're probably talking about drum overheads and, you know, uh, stuff that's been mic'd up in stereo things like pianos and things. Uh, but in the mid-range, yeah, if you've got guitars and you've got vocals, especially if it's a fairly simple arrangement, you know, if there's lots of things going on, you can pan things around and balance them. But if there's not too much going on, people maybe won't have gone that wide with the panning. And that can kind of add to this, this feeling of clutter. So you need to be really careful with it. But one thing that might help uh, is mid-side EQ, sum and difference EQ. Um, and we did a whole episode on mid-side processing, so we won't go into huge detail. Potentially, you can open out the mid-range slightly uh, by 
pulling back the mid-channel, for example, or boosting the side signal. And that can help get a little bit of that space back, maybe, providing there's enough to begin with. And that could be a global mid-side uh, control, you know, the, the, a full-frequency control, just a stereo width uh, plug-in. But what can give you more... Uh, flexibility and, and allow you to get more surgical is to use mid-side EQ. So for example, one of the things uh, that I come across quite often is guitar sounds that have lots of upper mid energy, you know, that kind of 2K guitar sound, and I'm listening to something, oh, they need more body. Um, if there's some panning, if they're panned out from the middle, there's an opportunity there because you can go in with a side boost in maybe that 500, two to 500, maybe up to 1K region, wherever they need it. And you can pull out some of that muscle in the guitar sound. And it also has a nice uh, way of widening the mids as well, possibly. And I'm not, I'm talking about small changes here. And it, I said, I'd come back to phase linear EQ. If you're going to try this, it needs to be phase linear EQ. If you try and do this with a minimum phase or a normal EQ, all kinds of horrible things will go wrong. Uh, don't do that. <laughs> um, it's uh, one of those Spider-Man processes with great power comes great responsibility. You can do a lot of damage to a mix with this kind of thing, but also you can get some really nice improvements sometimes. If there's enough of a stereo spread in there to begin with, just to kind of tease those frequencies apart, it can be a great way of getting a bit more space into that mid-range um, and kind of reducing that clutter and also getting things more balanced. Because, you know, if you have a kind of a nice warm vocal right down the center and then jangly guitars on the panned out to the left and right i mean that might work for the material it might be exactly right but sometimes that can the guitars can actually grate on your ears especially if the eq's been overdone a little bit if you use a general eq over the whole thing to to tame those then the vocal starts to lose clarity and presence um, whereas if you just apply it to the side signal to the difference signal hopefully it can give you a better result sounds like a good strategy uh, and the other thing, just to mention briefly, which is something that's kind of quite new to me, there's a plugin called Center One, which is made by Leapwing Audio, uh, which is specifically designed to give you more control uh, over the uh, the mid and the side information in a mix without having to go back to the mix. Um, and it goes beyond what's possible with a simple mid-side adjustment. I don't really know exactly how it works. It's it's using, you know, psychoacoustic effects. Um, you need to be very careful with it. I've only recently got hold of it and just started experimenting, but it's specifically designed to help you, for example, lift a vocal that might be a little bit buried in a mix um, without changing the overall stereo spread or pull that back or lift up stuff around the edges. Um, again, it's you need to be careful with this stuff because you can make a horrible mess. But... And we haven't said this yet. As always, you know, we talked about it in the episode on mastering crappy mixes. It's much better to go back to the mix and fix most of these things that we're talking about in the mix. But, you know, if something's already been recorded, if an entire album's been recorded with a, in a weird room with weird vocal sound, then the artist almost certainly doesn't want to redo that. So it has to be dealt with somehow, and maybe we can help with that. And the same thing applies with this. So... If people are interested in experimenting, then my early impressions of the Center One plugin were were really favourable. So yeah, those are some sort of slightly more you know kind of edge case options for helping improve this kind of thing. So there are engineers that will use specific monitors because of their mid range focus frequency response, where it's kind of like it rolls off everything or it boosts kind of the mid range um, NS tens Oratones. Or maybe they'll have like custom box with car speakers in it. Who knows? But it's fairly common to see that, especially on um, mixing engineers' desks. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, it's it's not something that I use myself a lot. But I uh, the studio I used to work at had BMW 801s, these massive speakers, you know, full frequency, um, and also a pair of NS10s, and it was they were useful on occasion. I mean. In some ways, it was just uh, helpful for making the clients feel comfortable because <laughs> a lot of clients weren't used to hearing, you know, this huge monitoring system would just be kind of freaked out by the overall amount of bass that they were hearing, for example. So to to hear on the smaller speakers that were 
maybe similar to what they've been mixing on was kind of reassuring. Um, but one area they were helpful with, it kind of relates to that thing we were saying about the harmonics and the ear filling in missing notes. If you have a very pure, subby bass sound in particular, with not very many high harmonics, um, it can sound amazing on big speakers. And then you listen to it on smaller speakers and actually it just completely disappears um, because the speakers don't reproduce those very low frequencies and those high harmonics aren't there as clues. Um, so that can be a helpful perspective. I mean, again, it can be tricky to deal with in mastering. I guess you could use um, one of those plugins we mentioned in the the, the bass episode, the kind of uh, waves make one called... Max Bass. Max Bass, thank you. And another option is a plugin called Low Ender, um, which I actually haven't tried myself, but uh, Bob Katz was recommending on Facebook uh, a while ago that does something similar. They, they basically allow you to add add in missing harmonics or, or fake harmonics, if you like, to, to solve this very issue. So you can you could use them in a mix to, to add low end to a, a middly bass sound where the EQ isn't doing it. Um, or you could use it over a whole mix to try and add in some of those higher harmonics, I think. So there might be something that you can you can do at the mastering stage to help with that, but it certainly can be helpful to, to realize, you know, if uh, it's much better to make a client aware at the mastering stage, hey, actually, you're not going to hear much bass if you listen to this on small speakers than to kind of go through the whole process and then for them to come back and kind of complain to you about it um, when, you know, the whole idea of mastering is achieving translation. So, yeah, I think that could be useful in some cases, certainly. Going back to the, the the dynamics aspect, one thing we haven't mentioned would be dynamic EQ. Um, is that something you've used for this kind of thing, John? Yeah, definitely. I, I guess I, I use it more for like bass notes than anything else. Um, but I'll, I'll use dynamic EQ for sibilance. That's kind of mid-range, isn't it? Sort of. It's, it's right it's, on the boundary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But yeah, if, if there's if any frequencies that's jumping out and it's kind of occasional, I might use dynamic EQ. Are there dynamic EQs that are linear phase? I, I would assume that same thing goes with the EQ. If you're doing anything narrow, you want it to be a linear phase. Yep, I would agree. Absolutely. I think um, I'm pretty sure the Pro Q3 will do dynamic EQ in linear phase mode. Um there's another uh, dynamic EQ that's really popular, which is the TDR Nova. Yeah, I um, use Nova, and I have the Ozone Eight Advanced Dynamic EQ. I haven't, I really haven't used that stuff very much. No, I, I haven't. I, I find Ozone Eight to be so much slower than Five, so it, it's been a slow transition for me, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I haven't looked into Ozone in in detail recently. Um, but uh, yeah, I've used the Nova and uh, yeah, it, it can really work, but you're right. Um, it needs to be, you need to have a linear phase for this kind of thing, probably, especially if you're going for narrow cues. Um, I think a dynamic EQ makes these issues even more uh, noticeable because because it changes. So, you know, it, if there's a slightly weird effect of pulling back uh, 1K by 3 dBs, it gets even more noticeable when that's sometimes there and sometimes not. Um, sure. It depends on the mix. But yeah, dynamic EQ can definitely be a way of, especially if you've got frequencies that are ringing out, uh, you know, maybe it is a particular to do with a mic choice or uh, the the amp that's been used for a guitar or whatever it is where some particular thing is leaping out, it can be helpful. And we mentioned this in the the episode on high frequencies, um, and it's an, another Spider-Man plug-in, uh, but uh, Soothe by Irk Sound can also be be helpful in this area. I've I'm I'm saying that, and I'm not actually sure th- sure that there's an example where I've used it successfully on the mid range because I think chances are it's going to bite in too much to things like guitars and drums over a, a whole mix. I think it's probably better suited to higher frequency stuff. No, that's not true. I, I've said that, and then I can think of a, of a project where I did. It had really kind of clangy metallic guitars, just too aggressive, too grating. And uh, I try. I started off trying kind of you know nice gentle EQ reductions at certain frequencies, and it just wasn't working. And Soothe was just the trick in that case. When it works, it reacts to the music 
and only pull stuff out as necessary. And it's not limited to a particular frequency. So it's not like you have to say, oh, there's a problem at 1K, I'm going to deal with that. It'll kind of, you know, if it's 800 hertz, it'll grab that. And then if it's 1200 hertz, it'll grab that, depending on what's being played. So uh, when it works, it can get an even more natural result, but it can do a lot of damage as well. So uh, I think probably a last resort, um, but another interesting option. It's a weird plugin for sure. It's, it's a weird plugin. I think it's quite powerful. Um, one tactic that I heard recently suggested by Sigurdor, uh Goodmanson, who anybody who's uh, chatted to me on Facebook will probably have have met by now. He's a Icelandic mastering engineer, but uh, is now in Denmark. He often recommends Soothe to people. And I think he has an interesting technique where he will actually kind of apply pre and post EQ to get real fine control over which frequencies he wants to to deal with. So, and I, I haven't talked to him in detail about it, but I imagine what he's doing is boosting the problem frequency um, so that Soothe is kind of doing almost nothing until it hits the bit where there's a problem. And then he will uh, reverse that EQ change on the other side so that the overall frequency response stays flat, but Soothe is working really hard just in the bit of the frequency spectrum that he wants uh, to deal with. Uh, which is a pretty interesting idea. You know, as all of these things, if you can get a result that works, fantastic. But I, I do start to think at the point where we need a plugin like Soothe in mastering, maybe we should really be talking to the client uh, about working on the mix or thinking ourselves about going back to the mix if we're working on our own material. Because, um, you know, it's like really extensive multiband compression or, or any of these things where you, where you have to work too hard at the mastering stage it's probably a sign that something isn't right to begin with. And that, I hadn't planned it, but seems like a pretty good mastering maxim, which is get it right to begin with. The best masters, as always, are the ones where we can use the lightest touch. You know, if you get a mix in and it's, oh, it needs a little bit more bass and I'm just going to warm up this frequency range here and a little bit of gentle compression, that's the ideal. The ones where you're kind of tearing your hair out, trying to figure out how to, you know, reduce that incredibly loud cowbell or uh you know the the vocalist who sounds like this all the time or you know the screaming upper mids in the guitars those are the ones where maybe it would be better for us to just take a step back and you know have a conversation and see whether there's a better solution than dealing with it at the mastering stage um because you know as we started out saying the mids are where the music is and ultimately this is all about music you know we're talking about frequency response and dynamics and all, all the rest of it but we want something that connects emotionally with people and that just makes them smile or laugh or cry or dance or whatever it's going to be. That's ultimately all about capturing a great performance and getting a great recording. And if we have to work too hard at the mastering stage, then there's probably something wrong. Was that too preachy? Yeah, but I can't really argue with it. Amen. <laughs> I'm thinking of setting up a Facebook group um, and I was asking people for suggestions of names and somebody suggested Shepherd's Flock um, I felt that was too preachy um, so <laughs> I apologise if that turned anybody's stumps okay well I think we've uh, covered the topic of mids fairly comprehensively there John thank you for your contributions as always yeah another fun episode if you enjoyed it or found it helpful or interesting, please head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a rating and review and tell your friends. It's a great way to help other people find the show. Thanks to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music as always. And thanks for listening.